Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Well, welcome again to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. Today we are proud to interview Paul Levitz, writer, editor, former publisher, and president of DC Comics, with which he had a professional relationship for more than 40 years. He is one of the key figures in revitalizing DC Comics through a strong series of managerial and creative decisions, and is writing and bringing the visitor to Valiant Comics. Paul, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, guys. So I'm going to start, Paul, and what we usually like to do is to get into the your very beginnings, your history, uh, where you were born, when your interest in comics, and so forth. So my my first question is: I know you were you were born in 1956 in Brooklyn, correct? Yep. Can you talk a little bit about your your earliest days, your parents, what they did for a living, that kind of thing? Sure. So I was born in Brooklyn almost exactly when Brooklyn stopped being cool, right about when the Dodgers got out of town. <laughs> my father's annoyance, dad was the chief clerk for an industrial hardware place, basically the nuts and bolts you used to build all the buildings in the New York area, all the towers and the rest came from their store. Mom had been a bookkeeper for the years she was working. She'd also gone back to school. And interestingly for this audience, had been a student of Wortham's for about two minutes somewhere along oh. the line at Brooklyn College. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. Did she have an impression of him? No, no. Just She just recognized the name years later. Sure. <laughs> were you an early reader? A lot of the people we talked to, that's one of the things they remember is they were reading before most of the other kids. Oh, yeah. If I had a superpower in my youth, it was my reading, just voraciously devouring anything that could be read in any direction. Encouraged very heavily by my folks, most intensively my mother. For the comics, those were the eras when... The slightly older kids on the block would have a carton of their comics in their garage, and you'd go sit there and paw through and find find something that you wanted to read. Of course, any kind of book. I'm a great fan of Doctor Doolittle when when I was very young, and on up then through mysteries and science fiction and almost anything I could get my hands on. You were reading DC comics more than Marvel at the very beginnings, is that right? Well, Marvel didn't have as good distribution in those early years, at least in Brooklyn. I think nationally it was kind of a little bit like the situation some of the independents and second-tier companies have today with the comic shops, where you go into any comic shop and you can find DC and Marvel, but you can't necessarily find Valiant or Boom or Dynamite in every shop. Sure. Well, the good shops, the bigger shops, certainly. And obviously it depends on what the individual customer base really loves in that, that area that really determines it. But newsstand distribution was by its nature kind of random. And if you remember your history, in the early 60s, DC sister company, Independent News, was controlling Marvel's newsstand right. distribution. Did that have something to do with the fact that they didn't have the greatest distribution? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> no firsthand knowledge or evidence, just, just seems plausible. Right. At any rate, mom loved my reading, 
she wasn't too fond of my reading comics. She figured it wasn't very good for my eyes with the crappy print they had in those days. So I was restricted to buying, if I remember correctly, three new comics a week. I had fallen in love with Mort Weisinger's line of Superman titles early oh, okay. on. And there were usually enough of those to keep you going. Or that and some other interesting DC that would catch your eye because of something on the cover. Yeah, we just interviewed his son and two weeks ago. Yeah, did, did you feel he was a good editor on Superman? He was an extraordinary editor. I mean, Mort, Mort's a complex piece of comics history because he was a extremely difficult man with the freelancers that he worked with. Uh-huh. But his consistency of editorial work and the imagination that went into the Superman titles in the years when Superman was the only one of the comic characters really with mass media exposure because of the old George Reeves, Noel Neal, Jack Larson TV yeah. show, kept the superhero going. Right. Now, you were also, in related to this, you were also a, a huge Legion of Superheroes fan, right? Well, they started the very beginning. in the Superman books, and I fell in love with that very early on. That was the first material I collected actively. There was a used bookstore in Brooklyn that would ultimately be a place where many of the people whose names you would recognize for comics were shopping. And when I was a kid at the very beginning, they were selling comics for half cover price because they were used and presumed worthless. As the years went on, they very swiftly caught on to the idea of comics being collectible and the prices of the older stuff went up. But the more recent stuff remained very cheap and enabled me to fill in an enormous collection fairly early on. Now, at some point, you started to read Marvel comics. I know you were you were like a Avengers fan. So when I was graduating public school, my dad was the principal of the PTA at that point. And because he was involved in a number of, I guess, the ceremonies or activities or whatever was going on, he took that week off for vacation and he was hanging around with me more. And he really didn't care about a three comic book a week limit in the deal. So I was able to pick up a few of the Marvels. I had read Marvels over the years before. I had one good friend on my block who loved Fantastic Four and argued with me that Fantastic Four was so much better than Legion. Uh, uh In retrospect, technically speaking, he probably was right. (laughs) But it wasn't my flavor at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I had encountered an issue or two of Ditko's Spider-Man in one of the friend's cartons. But I wasn't really paying attention to the credits at that point. I thought of Ditko only as the guy who drew the ugly faces. Right, right, right. But now, when uh, Ditko moved over to D.C. the first time and was doing Creeper and stuff, you would have been old enough at that point to be paying attention. Were you aware of him when he made the switch? Yeah, well, you're you're jumping a distance ahead in time, I guess. Yeah. I mean, not a lot, but... Well, we're, uh, well, we're going to go back. He's just asking us yeah, that thing. Yeah, 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 just in terms of 60. Wait, Ditko went over to D.C., what, 67 or so in terms of uh, the Creeper? 68? Yeah, I yeah, know. Uh, I certainly... I certainly knew the names by that point. I had I encountered fanzines for the first time about a minute before that. Mm-hmm. A friend in the country, I, we used to go away to the Catskills for the summer. A friend in the country ordered an issue of On the Drawing Board, the then current version of the comic reader. Right. And, and wow, you have all this information about what's coming and what's happening. And by that point, I was developing a more knowledgeable taste i don't know that it was more sophisticated yet 
Okay. I'm not sure I can claim my taste in comics today is more sophisticated, but I was much more aware of beginning to be aware of the names of people. I was starting to write letters to see if I could get my letters published, starting to do, I'll call them proto fanzines. Yeah, right. First you one, were doing that by 11, right? Eh, sounds about right. I think the first first ones on done on carbon paper were probably at about 11. And that was kind of inspired by the comic reader? Absolutely. And at 14, right around 1971, it, you actually started up, um, et cetera, correct? So the main news magazine of the era was Donna Maggie Thompson's Newfangles. Right. Uh -huh. And they were a young married couple. They'd been doing the fanzines for a bunch of years. They, I think, had the second kid right about then. And life was getting busy and life was getting complicated. And they figured they couldn't keep this up for very long. Right. So they announced they were going to go out of business in a year. That way they didn't have to return any money to anybody for subscriptions. Uh -huh. um, but you could send in and order the remaining issues. Yes. My buddy Paul Kupperberg and I were sitting around my living room. Oh, my God, we're not going to know what's going on. And we scraped together 16 bucks between the two of us, which is a little more money than it is now. but. Still wasn't a hell of a lot of money. Uh -huh. And uh, started, et cetera, a news magazine that you know, sent copies to Don and Maggie and a couple of other places that would run reviews and started to get a few subscribers. Not very many the first few months, but, you know, crawled upwards. Was Paul your, your neighbor or how, how was that? We were middle school buddies. Middle school buddies. Yeah. New York terms, he lived, I guess, probably a half mile away as the crow flies, but that doesn't count as a neighbor in Brooklyn. Right, right. We're going to ask you a lot about that, and, and it's pretty quickly the way it came into being with Comic Reader. But I wanted to ask first, we use the word fan today in a very different context than what you were describe it back then. A fan was, can you talk about what a fan meant back in 71? Well, I think that the difference, it's not simply a matter of comics today. The word fandom has become an English language general word. And sometimes you even kind of horribly see it used as a, a verb. I'm going to fandom that, which makes me twitch. But the definition in the, in the 70s, certainly in the 60s before that, there were three species of people interested in comics. Readers, which was a near universal thing for young kids. Collectors, people who would actually hold on to the comics after they read them and sort of consciously look for specific issues, maybe buy back issues. Not a lot of people buying back issues, but a few. Mm -hmm. And fans, which at that time really implied that you had some activity. Mm. You went to a comic convention. There were very few. You bought fanzines. You made your own fanzine. You might participate in an amateur press alliance, the APAs. You worked at a convention. Lots of people volunteered proportionate to the size of the convention compared to today because they really weren't commercial enterprises yet. You did something. You made indexes. Right. I just found a loose leaf notebook I hadn't seen for a decade or more in which I had laboriously indexed 50 or 60 or 70 different titles wow. over a number of years, you know, titles, issue numbers, who credits if, if they were available. And I must have done that between when I was 10 or 11 and 14 or 15, maybe 16. Wow. 
that speaks a lot to your personality of being very organized. Yeah, or obsessive compulsive. One there you go. <laughs> one or the other, yeah. Both, maybe. I just have one other question. As you were doing these these early ones, well, two actually. One, were you involved at all in Legion fandom? And that I know that was a real thing at the time. Well, I don't think there was a distinct Legion fandom at that time. I think there were people who felt it was a favorite book, but there was nothing, there wasn't the same level of segregation between the different sub-fandoms, I think, that you see later on. It was starting to be a distinction between DC and Marvel fandom, certainly. And Stan was doing such amazing P.T. Barnum-like rousing of the Mary Marvel Marching Society and right. the rank order that you could earn as a Marvel fan by getting a letter published or finding a mistake or buying three or more titles or whatever the numbers were. And there certainly were people who were distinctively fans of other things. But the first Legion-focused APA Interlac, I'm going to say probably was 75, mm. maybe 74, something like that. Right. Did uh, Dave Cockrum's run have anything to do with that, you think? Uh, it didn't hurt. You know, I think a lot, a lot of it came from the work that was done on the fanzine Legion Outpost. That's what I was thinking of, of things like that. My other question, then I'll turn it over to Alex, was when you were doing uh, Etc., this was around the time that Kirby had left Marvel and had gone to DC and was doing New Gods. And for me, and I'm, I was born in 59, that was when I really started to pay attention to artists as, as artists. I mean, I followed Kirby over to DC, although I was, I was reading DC anyway. When he was doing New Gods, how were you interacting with that? What were you thinking about? Because later on, Darkseid obviously becomes very important in terms of when you're doing Legion. Did you think it was something special or did you think it was clunky in the writing? or what, How were you processing it as a, as a teenager? In terms of how I was interacting with it, I started, et cetera, we started, et cetera, right as Jack's work was coming out from D.C. We didn't get to break the story, but we were certainly covering it almost from the beginning. Right. I vividly remember standing by Carol Fine's desk. She was Carmine's secretary at that point. She would get the packages from Jack. She'd be opening it up and, you know, here, Paul, you want to look? You know, here's here's the. Oh, new wow. You know, it, it was so different from what had been done before. The flaws that we look back on now are real, but we have a tendency, I think, to lose track of how outrageously courageous it was and how much it set the model for so much of what comics have done in the ensuing five decades. Mm -hmm. The idea of the interlinked world, the idea of interlinked titles, the idea of consciously building that kind of mythology. Up until then, each of the comic book mythos accreted over time, but weren't planned. You know, Stan wasn't keeping notes, so he would misname the Hulk, an issue or two in. He'd forget what somebody's power was and it would work differently. The DC editors were no more focused on it. Bob Kaniger, who was doing Wonder Woman, would contradict himself completely two issues later with a story that went in a whole opposite direction. Julie Schwartz's books that he was doing with Gardner Fox and John Broom as the writers were more structured, but they weren't really focused on mythology. Even when you start things like flash of two worlds and you begin to deal with the idea of a multiverse it's a thrown out story and it isn't returned to for a year and a half sure 
And this was just book after book coming out and it all building upon each other. It really was revolutionary, wasn't it? And from one guy's imagination. Weisinger's Superman books had as much mythology, but it had been accreted over a significant amount of time and by a team of writers, somewhat directed by Mort in that, and certainly encouraged by Mort, and he set a tonality to it, but still not with the same, same scale to it. And were there people in the DC offices divided about it, or did they all recognize, or just mystified by it, not understanding it, what was happening with it, or, or did they appreciate what he was doing? You know, I don't remember any conversations with any of the older folks in the office about it. You know, the assistant editors who were, I don't know, between, I guess, six and ten years older than I was, treated me as up here because they'd come out of comics fandom and they were very encouraging to me, very supportive of me. The assistant editors at Marvel in that period as well. The major editors at DC were my parents' generation. Right. Sure. And they were terrific with me about doing the fanzine. They were very supportive, gave me lots of information, lots of help, but they certainly weren't about to badmouth a writer or an artist or compliment one for that matter right 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 so now uh just to give a, a quick background to the listener so on the drawing board was a fanzine started by jerry bales which was then changed to the comics reader and then it became defunct despite winning an alley award in 1969 so paul shortly after you started etc you bought the comic reader when it had stopped publication and you were 15 at the time. And I guess I have some questions about that is what exactly did you buy? Was it the name? Was it a subscriber list? How much did it cost? Tell us about that. I didn't buy it. Okay. So Mark Hannerfeld at the time, who was the last editor of the comic reader was working as Joe Orlando's assistant oh. doing other sorts oh. of freelance at DC. Occasionally I'm up at the DC offices Mark comes over to me one day with a giant manila envelope full of coins and index cards. I see. Here, you're doing what I set out to do, because we were managing to publish every month and run the listings. Why don't you take this, fulfill these subscriptions? So suddenly we were the comic reader and suddenly we were the one of the two largest circulation fanzines of the time. And really the the largest circulation one that had content. Alan Light's original version of the buyer's guide was all advertising hadn't hadn't started to run things like don and maggie's content yet at that point for the next year you published it as a combined name etc and the comic reader and then they ran like that until issue 90 so it went like that for a while so what exactly happened if they split back up into two separate things what happened with that yeah well we transitioned i transitioned the core fanzine to the comic reader because was a better name uh-huh. and when i i guess about two years into doing the fanzines i guess i got a little more still more ambitious by then i had talked my parents into letting me replace the tenant in the basement so that i could have a, a studio set up there to run the business out of and copperberg had gotten back involved he wanted to do an article fanzine so we put the name, et cetera, on that. Also started working on the New York Comic Convention program books around that time. Mm-hmm. So were you both working on both of them or were you working on TCR and he was working on et cetera? Well, 
I mean, I was the editor on TCR. He was the editor on et cetera. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was running the business, <laughs> if you want to call it a business of both. He was occasionally contributing articles. And, you know, it wasn't just the two of us. There were other other folks who were hanging around, a lot of the young people who were moving to New York from fandom to break into comics at that point mm-hmm. would hang out in the basement and be helpful, be part of it. Mm-hmm. People would either be regular columnists, Doug Munch, who would write about a thousand Marvel comics, I think. Right, right, uh, a lot. Warren had a column at one point. Mark Evanier had a column occasionally. Tony Isabella right. had a column. You know, names you would recognize. You increased the circulation with the fanzines. You got two Best Fanzine Awards. How did you attract artists like Jack Kirby, Chaikin, Simonson, Buckler to work on covers? Uh, were you hanging around at the offices, or how did that connection come about while you're working on the fanzines? Well, it's a very different world. I mean, at that point, there's only about 200 people working in American comics in creative jobs, and all but a handful of them are in the New York area. Uh-huh. You would see the guys either at the offices most often, at New York Comic Con, the one time a year it happened. I think the second Sunday monthly trading conventions hadn't started. Some of the guys I would see at the, that bookstore I mentioned, my friend's bookstore, Chaikin Simonson, were regulars there. Oh, cool. In the years they were they were living in Brooklyn. When right. They were starting out. For the most part, it was their way of saying thank you for a free subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them I remember paying 15 or 20 bucks for a cover. I still can't remember whether Kirby took any money or, or whether he did the cover for my 100th issue just as a thank you. He's a really nice man. Mm-hmm. I saw that Tom Fagan wrote an issue in the 1973, etc., about the Rutland Parade. Did you ever meet Tom Fagan? Met him later on in years. Yeah, I never made it to Rutland, sadly. Oh, okay, okay. Now, you did the program book for Phil Suling for 1973 Comic Art Convention. So how did that come about? Was that because of your fanzine work? And what kind of guy was uh, Phil Suling? I think we did 74 to 76. Mm, Okay. I had met Phil many years before when I was a kid. He had briefly run a used bookstore in Brooklyn that also carried some comics that was a couple of doors down from a cousin's real estate office. My dad was doing a side job there and had, I think had actually rented the space to Phil, which may not have been a favor for Phil because it clearly wasn't a very successful business. <laughs> um, but then when we started doing the comic reader, Phil offered us a free table at New York Con in 71 mm. if we would sell other people's fanzines as well because oh, couldn't have space. Uh-huh. And from then on, both at New York Con and at what were called the Second Sundays, the dealer table only monthly cons he would run a couple of years later. We had a fanzine table. That's how I got to know a lot of the young people who were active in fandom across the country, you know, yeah. selling Gary Groth's fantastic fanzine, things mm-hmm. like that, and was involved with Phil and the conventions from that. I guess when Sal Quartuccio, who had done a beautiful job on the fanzine phase, gave up doing Phil's program books, he needed somebody. And he asked me and Paul to step in. All right. So then my understanding is that you sold the comic reader in 1973 to Street Enterprises because yep. you're uh, now working uh, more for DC at this point. Tell us about that transition. And now at this time, you're about 17-ish. 16. 16. Okay. Yeah. Now, so 
Jerry Sinkovec and Mike Tiefenbacker had been doing a beautiful job with the Menominee Falls Gazette, which was a fanzine basically running syndicated newspaper strips. Mm-hmm. They had managed to talk the various syndicates into allowing them to run them. I'm sure that I'm sure the syndicates were charging something. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, figured out how to run that as a business and they were running it smoothly. I was ready to give up the fanzine because I was starting college and working at DC a couple days a week to pay for college. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And they were ready to take it on. So we worked out a deal. Not a massive financial transaction either, but uh, <laughs> it was nice to see the heritage continue. Yeah, right. Also, then, this is a little bit of a backtrack, but you'd been hanging around the D.C. offices as part of the fanzine work since early on, and you started doing some freelance work at D.C. for Joe Orlando, and this was since uh, earlier, since what, 14 years old or so, 15? 16. Oh, so this is all 16. Okay. Well, so what were you doing? You were writing letters columns? What was going on here? So I'm a high school senior. I'm walking through the offices doing the fanzine stuff one day in December. Joe calls me in. He says, you want to write my letter columns, kid? I said, I'm not a writer. He said, yeah, I read your fanzine. You write well enough to write a letter column. It's not exactly a very high bar, I admit. But so suddenly I was a professional writer getting paid to do this. Yeah. And fairly shortly after that, I was given the opportunity to do the DC equivalent of the bullpen pages, direct currents, mm. amazing world of DC, mm. and you know had branched out that way. And then... The summer of 73, Joe's assistant, Michael Fleischer, and was going to take the summer off as an extended vacation. He was a writer. He had a major writing project or something he wanted to work on. And Joe asked me if I would fill in. Sure. So yeah. the day after I graduated high school, age 16, I'm, I'm an assistant editor on the masthead, working a couple days a week. Michael never comes back. I didn't kill him. He went off to write and do some really interesting stuff with the UN <laughs> in Africa eventually. Okay, um, so there wasn't a homicide involved. That's good. As far as I can recall, I've not killed anybody long. <laughs> uh-huh. And then your first staff job was uh, assistant editor uh, for yep. uh, Under Orlando, right? Yep. So tell us about that. Well, Joe was doing a lot of mystery books, one or two things that verged on the superheroes, a lot of couple of war books, I think, at the time. And from time to time, depending on what genre DC was getting into that week, Carmine would walk in and tell him he had just put two sword and sorcery books on the schedule, come up with them. So as an assistant editor, particularly on the mystery books, you did a lot of rewrite. Mm. Joe bought a lot of stuff either from very young writers or very old writers. And it's kind of a tie which one of them needed more help. So I felt I had learned enough to write. I began to do... couple of short mystery stories for uh, Joe and for Tex Blaisdell, who was editing a couple of titles at that time. Uh-huh. And as opportunities opened up, I grabbed them. So I got to do, when Carmine wanted to launch Sword and Sorcery titles, I got to come up with Stalker and get Steve Ditko and Wally Wood drawing, drawing an original series I created at age 17. You know, Pretty awesome. mm-hmm. and wrote some phantom strangers wrote an issue of karate kid wrote a few aquamans and whatever. when jerry conway he came over from marvel around this time as well is that is that correct yep jerry wanted to try his hand at being an editor he i think had been pissed off at the dynamic with len and marv who were 
sharing the editor-in-chief role there for a while. Right. I forget the exact details, the function of who got which Spider-Man book to do or something. Right, right, right. And he came over as a very young editor and had to really create a new line of titles. He wasn't given anything much of the established material to work with. Mm -hmm. And I took on being his assistant as well. Mm -hmm. Got an extra day here and there out of it. Learned a lot. Jerry was a really solid writer. Was he an influence on you as far as writing style and such? Oh, absolutely. Jerry, Denny O'Neill, who would edit my stuff about a minute later. Anybody whose hand touched my work in those early years was an influence because I was so busy learning. I was so awkward and so young. Right. Yeah, because I saw that on some of the writing credits at the time, it'll say by Jerry Conway and Paul Levitz. Like it'll be like a combined writing credit. Usually that's a case where Jerry's schedule was so full that he he would have the idea for a story but wouldn't have time to do the breakdowns of it for the artist. And I'd jump in and do something like that. Or vice versa on Aquaman, there were one or two issues where, because Carmine was not impressed with early writing, he wanted somebody more experienced to work on it. So I might have plotted it and Jerry might have executed it, but it very rarely was anything resembling a marriage of equals. I see. Vastly more experienced than I was. More experienced. And now you were doing, doing this while you were starting college. So you were kind of doing two things at once here that sound both very busy. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear over the years that I have a pretty good capacity for work. Yeah, you can do a lot of things at once. So what was the DC environment like in those days as far as, you know, this is like toward the end of Carmine's run there. Were you treated well as the new person? And this was also around the time with the Siegel and Schuster lawsuit. Neil Adams was like DC Comics big gun in those days. So tell us about that overall environment at the time. I guess the hardest thing for the current generation of fans to focus on is how small the environments were. You know, you're used to thinking of DC and Marvel as being part of these giant corporations and having so much influence across the world. And DC was owned by corporation, Warner Communications, but it really was almost a freestanding group of about 30 people and had very little interaction with the rest of the corporation. Marvel was even smaller and part of an even smaller organization. Mm -hmm. So these were really small communities. In general, the older guys at DC were incredibly supportive. I was a very young kid, and occasionally I was a smartass, and I was occasionally trying to do things where my my reach exceeded my grasp, I suspect. So there were, from time to time, problems based on that, but I think they were probably kinder to me than I would have been to me. Uh Uh And mostly... I just learned an enormous amount from them because Chaikin's line is that we we were there for the end of the beginning. Right. And we really got to know the people who created the business that way and hear the stories of the beginning. Right. What was your impression of the Siegel and Schuster lawsuit at the time, like while it was going on in 75? That wasn't a lawsuit. That's that was a public relations campaign. They did public relations campaign. There you go. Jerry had lost the last opportunity to take the existing case he had had to a higher court a couple of years before he and Joe were both in pretty miserable financial shape. And with the Superman movie in pre-production or production at the time, he felt that he had an opportunity to embarrass Warner into being more generous to him. Right. And that worked. 
you know, I got to know Jerry and Joe at that point to my pleasure and, you know, remain friends with them for the rest of their lives. I think all of the, certainly the young people in comics in the mid seventies were very conscious that the deals that had been in place for creators had not worked to the creator's advantage. Right. Depending on where you stood philosophically or politically, people would either argue that they had been ripped off or people would simply say, hey, it was a, a time when this was the norm, but the norm sucked. Yes. Um, the people who created all of this wonderful stuff should have done better as a result. And there was a, certainly a lot of consciousness of it, a lot of discussion of it, a lot of frustration about it. And I hope that in the ensuing years, we could make the industry a better place somehow. Right. Which I, if I feel like you, I think we feel like you did. Did you have uh, dealings with Neil Adams? He was running continuity with Dick Giordano. Uh, what was the relationship between DC Comics and continuity around this time? Well, if you're talking about the Carmine's last days, there really wasn't a hell of a lot. Uh-huh. Dick, Dick would ink something occasionally, but Neil was doing nothing or almost nothing in comics in Carmine's last couple of years. Uh-huh. After Jeanette arrived, Neil became much more involved with DC for a while. Uh, I see. And did a bunch of covers and certainly gave a lot of background and advice to Jeanette about his view of the, of the industry. He's never been, been shy about his views. Right. What was your relationship with uh, Carmine Infantino uh, as he was ending? Did you have much of a relationship with him at the time before he left as publisher? You know, it was, a, it was a small place. He had a relationship with everybody. Mm-hmm. He was the boss in the place. As I say, there were 30 of us. He knew right. every, He knew everything that was going on. Do you feel like, this is a, a tough question, do you feel like he was a good publisher? No, I think Carmine was an extraordinary artist. He was a great cover editor. He was a very good editorial director. When you look back and you look at the group of people he brought into roles as editors, Joe Orlando, Dick Giordano, Joe Kubert. Those are three people who contributed a tremendous amount to the company in the next batch of years. You look at the talent he brought into DC in those years, Kirby, Ditko, those are great contributions. It was a crappy time to be on the business side of the company. The comic book business, as it was configured, was shrinking out of existence. A lot of pressure. Carmine was not trained in business, educated in business really incredibly comfortable on the business side of it, in my opinion. And he did some things to try to make it better for the talent. Mm -hmm. He started the return of original art at DC. He started reprint payments at DC. But he wasn't able to put all of it in place firmly Mm. because of the difficulties of the economy. And he wasn't able to stay a steady course because every time the company took two steps in a given direction, business sucked. There was corporate pressure, and he would go shooting off in some other direction to try and respond to it. Mm. I don't think he did a great job in the, his years on the business side, but I'm not sure anybody could have at that time. Marvel was not triumphing as a business company in those same years. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. So, Jim, you're going to talk about freelancing. Yeah. For me, that's just astounding is for you to create a character like Stalker and to have Steve Ditko and Wally Wood on inks working on it. Was that thrilling or more intimidating? I don't intimidate a lot, I don't think. Um, 
And I certainly was too young and too dopey to intimidate much at that age. It was thrilling. You know, Carmine had literally stuck his head in and said, Joe, I need two more sword and sorcery books. One's coming out in January. You're two months late on it. One's coming out in February. You're only one month late on it. I may be getting the months wrong, but I think, I think that's about what it was. You know, and I, he walks out and I say, I, I could write one. You know, I like sword and sorcery. I could, I can try that, Joe. Uh, and Joe said, all right, come in with something tomorrow. So I went home and I channeled my best Michael Moorcock and came up with Stalker. And he handed it to Ditko, who needed work. And I'm just, you know, amazed. <laughs> were they of the hopes that y'all were going to come up with something sword and sorcery wise that would compete or have the same popularity as Conan? That seems to be what everybody wanted was to have the next Conan. I guess. I mean, Conan was doing well. Remember that comics had a long history of jumping on genres and trying to figure out what the next hot genre was. Yeah. And that's the way the publishers thought. You know, Sword and Sorcery is working. You know, start three Sword and Sorcery books. Who knows? Maybe one of them will work. And in, in 1975, you also co-created a character that you were probably shocked later to see become as well known as it was. And that was uh, Lucian, the librarian, who premiered in uh, Weird Mystery Tales 18 in sort of a plop style introduction. And he was going to be the host of... Uh, Tales of Ghost Castle and was for three issues? No, he started he started for Ghost Castle. They launched Ghost Castle as a new book. Tex was going to, Blaisdell was going to be the editor. I was going to write most of it. And it needed a host. And the style of Joe's books was to be pseudo-biblical. So I played with a name that I didn't think we could do Lucifer, but I played off Lucifer for Lucian. I still have Joe's original sketch hanging on my wall. Yeah, it was... Not a very deep conception. Really, it's what Neil did with him years later in Sandman that made him an interesting character. Do you remember writing that, that little short intro, though, in Weird Mystery Tales? Because I, I just read it this morning. It is there. It's like a three-page It's a three page story interacting with the witch that was a host from Weird Mystery Tales. Really? Yeah, with, with your writing credit. But yeah, it's, it's, and it looks like something right out of Plop. And she's like, and he's like explaining that he's doing research because he's going to be the new host in uh, this new book called Tales of Ghost Castle. I'm looking it up. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> because this is the cataloger we're talking to, so he will he will verify. No, I would I would just remind myself. I mean, listen, it, I, I a couple of years ago there was one of those fan pro trivia contest things at San Diego. And Mark Wade was answering all the questions about my writing before I could. From Weird Mystery Tales, it's the last story in the book. and it... It's basically a house ad. Yeah. I guess we had a page to fill, and they said, fill it. Okay. I have no memory of writing this. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> my, my credit's on it, so you're, you're right about the credit if you're wrong about the page count. Yes. All right. Speaking of what we're talking about, the uh, the mystery books, I wanted to ask you something that's of personal interest to Alex and I, which is there was a large number of Filipinos, obviously, that came and were hired by Infantino uh, for D.C. at the time. Many of them were working on mystery and war books. A lot of people think of it as basically five or six individuals, but there was a huge number 
of artists that were working on those books at that time. And you you were, as assistant editor or working with those, you were working with a lot of those, correct? Part of my job was, again, it's a different era. You had to send the material back and forth in a courier package. There was no Federal Express. You sent it by a company that would literally have someone take it, carry it on a plane and bring it over. So it was very expensive. So you'd only send the package, I think, once a month, and they would send the art back once a month or once every two weeks. And part of my responsibility was putting that all together. If you had to make a call over there to check on something, I think we had to get Carmine's permission to call that long distance. I remember uh-huh. once being on the phone and Alex Nino was late on something. And the answer was, yes, we are sending a runner out into the jungle to find Alex. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's like Indiana Jones. You know, it, it was it was a fascinating outsourcing. Tony Dizaniga's wife, Mary, had set up the first version of it, and then Nestor Redondo took it over. And Tony was a Filipino who had moved here, a wonderfully talented artist. And he was aware of the depth of the comics culture over there, the number of great artists. And the artists over there at the time were making, if they were really terrific, four or five dollars a page pencil and ink. And the top American rate at the time was probably about $60, $65 pencil and ink. So a deal was struck to pay them like three times what their usual rate was, maybe even a little more than that, but a third of what the American rate was. So both sides thought they were screwing the other amazingly, and right. everybody was having a fabulous time. <laughs> Ultimately, the Philippine artists who participated in that, many of them got very well off by Philippine standards. And a lot of them moved to the U.S. A lot of them went to work in California in animation after that. Just incredibly talented people. Alfredo Alcala, who might be the fastest artist who's ever worked in comics. Alex Nino with his surrealistic style. Nestor Redondo, beautiful stuff. Less famous but wonderful guys like Jerry Talayak, Ruben Yandok. You're right, it was quite a crew. Now, we're, because they were, you were able to get them at a... a or DC was able to get them at a cheaper rate and without other demands. Was that a negative in terms of older artists negotiations in terms of both pay, but also things like getting their, their art back? I don't think so. You know, there weren't the established artists in the field were generally getting all the work they could handle. It probably kept some of the younger artists from breaking in as quickly because They had to do stuff that that looked that good to compete. But I don't think it was putting any pressure on the older guys. I mean, business sucked. There there was not a lot of money to be had by anyone for anything in any circumstance. This didn't make it any worse. Now, the first title that I could see where you had a reasonably long run on was uh, was Aquaman. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think I managed about five or six on Phantom Stranger before it got canceled. But Aquaman certainly is the first superhero title that I okay. had. Okay. And the first issue you did was by Grell, but all the rest were um, were Jim Aparo. Would that be right? Yeah, well, Grell just, the one with Grell was just the backup when it became the lead feature a few months later. Aparo had been doing the Spectre, and he moved over to take over Aquaman, which replaced it. Had he done the Phantom uh, Stranger issues that you had done, or was that somebody no, else? Okay. No. I, I'm, mine were, I think, all by Fred Carrillo. One of the okay. 
And were you were you happy with the pair on Aquaman? And did did you care about Aquaman? Was he a character you had any uh, connection with? I mean, I had read of Aquaman through the years. I can't say I had any particular passion for him going in, other than it was an opportunity to do a superhero thing, and Joe wasn't usually in the superhero business. Aparo, you know, Aparo was, if not the best artist at DC for superhero material at that time, certainly arguably the best. So I was thrilled. Yeah, that's great. And again, right off the bat, you're getting some of the the best people working with you. That's that's exciting. Was that educational? Was that helpful being a, a rookie writer to be working with people that had experience or were just innately really solid? Did that help you learn to be a better writer? It's an interesting question. I never thought about that. It probably did. I mean, I one of the things that is distinctive about my work, I guess I'd say, I've been told by many artists over the years that I write very drawable scripts. Mm. Art direction is a hidden art form in our business. And some writers who write very good stories write very difficult stories for the artists to draw properly and very frustrating for the artists. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because I was taught at Joe's hand, who obviously had an enormous role in shaping me as a writer. But it's also certainly possible that seeing what Aparo or Ditko, Grell, the other really talented people I got to work with in the first batch of years, did with my work. That certainly could have helped in all of that. I've heard that about yours and Archie Goodwin's, that that's something you two had in common, that you can write scripts that artists felt that it was like key for the artist to draw. That's an interesting characteristic. I'm honored to be in Archie's company in a sentence. He was way over my pay grade. Remember also, Archie was a cartoonist himself, so he was able to think visually in a way that very few of us can. Now, were you ever, can you draw at all? No. No interest? Uh, You weren't weren't an artist as a kid at all? No skill. I took a couple of art classes. I don't think they threw me out, but they should (laughs) have. So I want to kind of be a a bit of a fan myself now and talk about All-Star Comics when you took that over in 1976, was that something that was a uh, dream project for you? Were you interested in those characters a lot? Because there seemed to be a great love of those characters in that all-star run. Thank you. Well, the first comic I can remember buying myself off a newsstand was a part of the first JLA-JSA team-up. So I've loved those guys for a very long time. When Jerry came to D.C., as I said, he he didn't get assigned a lot of existing books to work on as an editor so he had to create stuff or revive stuff out of dc's history and a couple of the things that he revived he didn't know much about the background of but he knew had been successful in years past all-star comics blackhawk in the case of blackhawk i was never a blackhawk fan and mm-hmm. uh, didn't know the material particularly well and so jack harris who was Murray Boltonoff's assistant editor, as his full-time gig, stepped in to be Jerry's other assistant on that and really provide the background information. On All-Star, I'm sure Roy Thomas was feeding Jerry a tremendous amount of information because they were good friends. But since I knew those characters well, that was a natural one for me to help out on. And in terms of bringing Wally Wood on board, 
where was Wally Wood at the time? How was he doing? Was he was he in a, a good place or a, a bad place? Was he getting a lot of work? Because I've heard different things about his participation on this. Well, you didn't hear anything about his being in a good place at that time. These are the last years of his life. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm trying um, to be a little diplomatic, but... I mean, Joe Orlando had been Woody's sidekick back in yeah. the East days. Sure. Right. Had studio space with him, had a long-standing relationship with him. So in the mid-70s, I don't know what Woody had been doing immediately previously, probably was the strips for the Army newspapers. He had yeah. packaged two or three of them, Sally Forth. I forget, I forget the names of the other one or two. Shattuck and um, and Cannon. Okay. I don't know if those had wrapped up or were just not paying as well. So he was trying to get Woody more work at DC. And I don't know whether it was a function that Carmine liked Woody as an inker, but not as a penciler, or that penciling was too time-consuming for Woody. But Joe came up with this approach of taking a couple of artists who were good layouts, good storytelling people, but weren't people Carmine would necessarily sign off on to do a book and have them just lay out pages at a lesser rate than penciling, and Woody would get a higher rate for doing quote-unquote finishes rather than inking. Right. This was Rick Estrada on the All-Star book, right? Rick Estrada on All-Star and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez on Hercules. Mm. Oh, that's right. And, I mean... Which, yeah. <laughs> Jose is as good an artist as has ever worked in comics, but he was just at the beginning of his career. He had not done superhero work. He was new to American comics. He was still learning the dynamics that he would master in such an incredible way. Those are beautiful issues, those Hercules issues. I, I love those, yeah. I think in Woody's case, this quote-unquote finishing didn't take him any more time than inking because he could add the additional drawing at the same speed he would ordinarily ink a page. He was just, he was so good. He was not in the best of health already at that time. He was not in the best of emotional health, I suspect, either at that point. He was kind of worn and beaten by life. But uh, worn out Wally Wood's still better than 99% of anybody who ever did comics. Right, right. It's, they're still beautiful issues. Yeah. Oh, th that castle stuff in the past, that stood out in my head so much at the time, because I don't know if I'd seen a lot of Wood. I'd seen those Daredevil issues. But I, I saw that, and I, I just it stuck in my head how much I was enjoying that series based on that. The story I, behind that story is Woody was about to start penciling the book. Carmine had left. I was writing the book. We had a lot of freedom of what to do. And it was, Woody, what would you like to draw? And he did a little pencil sketch of Superman in a suit of armor on a napkin. I don't remember. We were probably in the Warner cafeteria. That was the basis of that story. Oh, that's great. I, I wonder if that was if that came from the um you know there's an episode of the uh, of the Superman series where he's flying through the air in a suit of armor. I don't know. I mean, I think Woody loved knights in armor. I yeah. think All Stars are were his last mainstream work. Mm -hmm. I think he did some of the Wizard King stuff right. after that, but that was a, that was about it for his life, sadly. Yeah. Then the, those kind of questionable later Sally Forth things he did in like 1980 or so. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen those. They're called, uh, they're pornography comics. Well, you know, the, the line between the any of the Sally Forths and pornography, 
yeah. probably probably is a pair of bikini panties. <laughs> That's true. So um, so you you continued to write All Star and and did a lot with it, and you were really getting into. It was one of the early examples of of playing with the past and and developing a, a prior mythos. Uh, that later on became something that a lot of people did, but you you were doing it there in a really interesting way and playing with the whole Earth Two notion. Who were some of your favorite? Were there characters that you were especially interested in playing with, like Wildcat or or, or others? You know, I think it it depended on whose life I was screwing around with at the moment. We did a bunch of stories with Doctor Fate, who I always liked as a character. We did a bunch of stories with the original Green Lantern having some challenges in his life. We oh yeah screwed up Wildcat for a minute or two. Power Girl was always a lot of fun. And then, of course, with Joe Staten and Bob Layton, who were working on the book, I created the uh, the Huntress character. Right. And, and playing with Huntress and Power Girl together was always a lot of fun. That was a, a very different Superman and Batman riff. And a, yeah. a team a team that has stuck almost to this day, even although obviously Huntress is a very different character. Was she a, a creation entirely of yours? Definitely a co-creation with Joe and Bob. Bob Layton came from the Woody school, right? So that seemed like a nice transition from yeah. Woody's, Woody's inks. I think he was assisting Woody at the time. Right. So many people did over the years. It's hard to, hard to keep track of the people who were Wally Wood assistants or Dick Giordano assistants. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're right. Both great teachers. I'm going to go off script just for a minute and ask you something that takes place later, which is, this was all obviously Earth 2. Did you miss that after Crisis? Was it the right thing to do or a mistake to get rid of the alternate Earths? Well, the logic at the time, and it goes back to actually something Jerry Conway had suggested in the 70s, the logic was that the multiverse was too complicated for the readers. We were still thinking of our readers as primarily being 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds. By the time of crisis, we thought they were a little brighter and starting to be a little older, maybe 16 years old. But all this multiverse, the metaphysics of all of it, seemed awfully complicated. And Marvel was doing very well. was one of Marvel's advantages that they had this singular, seemingly logical continuity. That was the logic behind condensing it. I certainly missed the characters, but they all came back eventually. Right. Yeah. Of course, that also didn't do the Legion any favors. And uh, your first Legion run would have been back in this, this period of time, too. Can you talk about that? Now, this isn't the second one you did with Keith Given, but with the, uh, your, your first run at the Legion, being one of your favorite books anyway, what was it like to actually be working on that? And were you satisfied with it? Oh, gosh. Jim Shooter went over to Marvel to be an assistant editor there, and he was had been doing Legion again. I think I would have killed anyone who stood between me and the book at that point. <laughs> at, at that point, I might have become a murderer. But Denny O'Neill was editing it for a minute or two, and he had no idea who the characters were, so he really needed somebody who was a deep Legion fan, so he was very, very happy to let me have the assignment. I went through a number of editors... During that run, Denny, Al Milgram, principally. I'm not happy, wasn't even happy then with the work I did. I, it was a period when I had overcommitted myself as a writer. So there were too many fill-ins, too many jobs that I plotted but didn't dialogue. And at the same time, it's a hard book to get an artist to settle in on regularly. Jim Sherman, who 
amazingly talented guy. Did a bunch of them really beautifully. Mike Nasser, later used the name Mike Netzer, did a number of stories very nicely. But there was no continuity to it. Part of that was my fault. And part of it was the, the times we were in. So, no, I wasn't, wasn't particularly satisfied with that period. Ditko was, even did a few issues, right? Was that under yours? After me. Yeah, that was after you. Okay. Now, we're coming up on 1976. Oh, one, one other question. You did an issue of Karate Kid. Was that your choice to do? Was that something you wanted to do, or you just, you just did it as an assignment? No, I, I mean, again, Carmine had come down the hall and said, you know, we're going in the kung fu business, Joe. Start a <laughs> kung fu book. <laughs> Denny created Witcher Dragon, which he had originally developed in a novel for mm. his kung fu book. And Joe was trying to figure out what to do. I said, hey, you know, you, we've got a kung fu character. You know, can we borrow him from the Legion? And you know, at that period, editors were very much in control of their individual titles. So it was a sort of a bit of maneuvering to make the deal with Murray Boltnoff, who was the editor on the Legion, whose office was next door. But we were able to bring it over. I wrote the first, and then it was the period where my writing really hit the rocks with Carmine. So the book went over to David Michelini to take over. Ah, I see. So we get to 76. Now, you've been in at NYU for three years at this point in a business undergrad and then master's program. That's what, a five-year program? Yeah. And after three years, things are going so well at D.C. that you were making more money than you were going to make if you graduated from that program. Is that right? Yep. Jeanette had come in and the dynamics of the company was changing. It looked like there was some hope. And that's my segue back to Alex. Okay. So in 1976, there were changes. Carmine was essentially let go at DC Comics. Saul Harrison became president. Jeanette Kahn became a publisher. There was a, a quickly changing culture at DC Comics. So tell me what you mean by there was hope now. You became a full-time editor at this point. Tell me what you mean by there was hope and what was not looking like it was hope before she came. Well, in the 70s, the prevailing wisdom was the comic book business was dying. Ah, okay. The business model, what you call the product life cycle in marketing terms, that the traditional comic book had been in was clearly coasting to an end. The affidavit returns really have very little to do with it. There are a lot of fans who sit outside the business who come up with complicated theories about what goes on inside the business. There are several flaws to that. First of all, it's profound ignorance. I shared, <laughs> you know, I, as a kid, I wrote a column called Comic Economics a few times for Joe Brancadelli's fanzine. It's naive. I didn't know much about business. I certainly didn't know any inside information. And the comic book business was not a very public business. No comic book companies were public so that there were no published information about it in any detail so that even if you knew of something, it would have been very hard to research. Right. So you have fans who grab onto theories in places like San Francisco. You had early comic shops and a lot of early dealers. So there were a lot of purchases of new number ones off what we call the cash table from the ID distributors before the books went out to the traditional newsstands. Some of the guys who experienced that say, oh, well, in fact, Green Lantern, Green Arrow was selling fabulously because I know in my, in my distributor, we bought every copy that was there. 
Yeah, that's not what happened in Iowa. Or the newsstand system had many problems, affidavit returns being certainly one of them. But that's really a detail in the story. I mean, the essence of the story was that this form of distribution, which had existed in America for magazines, wasn't a great fit for comic books to start with because it was designed for advertising supported magazines, maximize circulation, even if it didn't generate any profit from the circulation per se, because the profit would come from advertising. Yes. Comics never did a lot of profit from advertising. So we weren't a great fit to start with. So in the 1950s, when Playboy could sell 90% of the copies it put out in the newsstand, a good selling comic book might sell 50 or 60% of the copies it put out. Right. By the 1970s, Playboy's selling 50%, 60%, and the comic books are selling 30%, printing three to sell one, hmm. which pushes up the price, lowers the profitability. And at the same time, the number of newsstands keeps declining. Mm -hmm. And the locations of the newsstands are becoming less and less friendly to children based on where the population is and how retail is functioning in this country. So a lot of things are coming together. And there's, there's no hope in sight in that. By the end of the 70s, there are a few comic shops, but very few, maybe 10% of the industry's sales on a good day. The difference from the time Jeanette came in and Jim Galton arrived at Marvel yeah. was had some people come in from the outside with some enthusiasm, with some experience. Jeanette had a lot of experience as a children's magazine publisher, which is what comics were presumed to be. Yes. Galton had a lot of experience as a book publisher. And they were trying to fix things. Yeah. It wasn't really fixable at that point. It would take until the comic shop side of the business matured a little bit more. Yeah. It felt livelier. And certainly in the case of DC, Jeanette very much wanted to make things better for the writers and artists. Mm. And for those of us who'd been sitting there, influenced by Siegel and Schuster, influenced by frustration at the economics of the business, that said, oh, you know, I can sign on to that. Let me be part of that. Yeah, that's great. Did you two uh, immediately get along uh, uh, upon meeting, you and Jeanette? We got along pretty fast. I mean, I'm, there weren't a lot of young people in the place. You know, she was very young. She came in at 28 years old. So we're nine and a half years apart in age. And there were two other, three other young guys on the editorial side and maybe two in the production department at that point, something mm -hmm. like that. Mm couple of young women in the production department as board artists, but not a lot of us. And I mean, Jeanette's description of how we bonded is, she says, I was the only person who kept saying no. The editors were so scared of this strange young woman who'd arrived from Mars <laughs> that no one would argue with her. And I would. And we had mm. some wonderful arguments and we found some good solutions, I guess. Would you consider her... Um you know, someone that you had learned from kind of like in the same vein as uh, Joe Orlando or some of the other people you worked with? I learned an enormous amount from Jeanette. It's very different deck than I learned from Joe. I mean, Joe, yeah. Joe was a comics guy. He taught me about comics, taught me a little bit about growing up as a human being, certainly right. too. But Jeanette's lessons were much more about how to work with people, how to manage as a leader, how to present yourself. She was a mentor in a whole bunch of ways to me in all of that. In a corporate fashion, it sounds like. 
you can't describe genetics corporates, but in a in a complex business world, let's say. I gotcha. She's probably the least corporate person who ever ran a division of a major corporation. Oh, I see what you mean. And we did some research. So you were also, were you writing drafts of contracts around this time? And Bob Stein and writing contracts, what is there to that? In the first couple of years after Jeanette got there, I began to basically run the administrative side of the editorial department. Mm. We used the title editorial coordinator at that point. That was uh, keeping, keeping the books on deadline as we started moving to written contracts, getting written contracts done. It was really challenging to get contracts done by the corporate legal department because they had a lot to do. And D.C. historically, A, wasn't a very important part of a company mm-hmm. and B, hadn't historically used a lot of legal talent. So hadn't been allotted a lot of support. Mm. So it was taking forever to get contracts done. And I started to rough draft them. Mm. Bob Stein was the general counsel for the publishing division of Warner at that point, which included Ah. DC, Warner Books, Mad Magazine, Independent News, or Warner Publisher Services, whenever they changed their name. I don't really remember the synchronicity. So I would do a rough draft of something, and I would bring it up to Bob. And he was terrific. He was a great teacher. He's still a good friend. He would go through and say, no, this word doesn't mean that legally. You have to use this term in this fashion or... You have to construct this, or did you think about this? And I learned to write a contract. I'm not a lawyer. I don't pretend to be. Outside of intellectual property, I don't know an enormous amount about the law other than what I've learned debating my son as he learned to be a lawyer. But within the area that was relevant for us, I learned what I needed to know. Saul Harrison as president and Jeanette Kahn as publisher, was there ever any butting of the heads between the two as one being more old school, one being more new school? Were you ever involved in any potential conflicts there or were there no conflicts at all? You know, conflicts is a strong word. Right. Um, what the two had in common is they were both extraordinarily decent human beings who wanted good things to happen for the company and they were both Jewish. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, not much in common. Not much in common. Okay. Saul was in his late 50s. He had no particular education. He probably was probably went to work straight out of high school as a color separator in comics in the days of Action One, literally. Yes. He knew the nuts and bolts craft mechanics of comics extraordinarily well. He'd been an inker occasionally. I think he lettered occasionally over the years, colored occasionally. But he was not a sophisticated business person. His idea of being supportive to the company included being the first one in the office and having your door open all the time for whoever needed help for whatever they might need and probably being the last one to leave. Jeanette usually had her door closed, came in when she came in, left when she left, would throw parties in her apartment for the talent, Mm. uh, way of recruiting people, would socialize with the talent, totally interested in the creativity of the material rather than the craft of the material. They were in a very difficult structural situation where they theoretically were equal partners in running the company with a sort of fuzzy dividing line between them. Mm. I don't think there was a lot of conflict per se, but there was certainly emotional tension back and forth. And it was a challenging few years for all of that. I got along well with both of them. So you could relate to both. Yeah, I mean, Saul, Saul taught me a lot. He took me to 
first trips inside a newsstand distributor, first time convention of the ID business went along with him. First times I went into a printing plant. He was even back on the 1976 program book for New York Con. I think I had fallen behind in the production of that. And I think he jumped in and helped, helped us with Phil to get that done. Jeanette was certainly the one who was more influential in developing me as, as an executive and giving me more responsibility and more free reign, but got along with both of them. Both of them taught me. That's cool. That's cool that you were kind of this uh, sounding board and sponge of uh, people like Joe Orlando and Harrison and Khan. It sounds like that was a super formative time. Uh I did an article once, Alex, or a web post, I don't remember where it is, where I describe as being bat boy to the Yankees when it was murderer's row. (laughs) The office at the time, think about this for a second with some distance. In the, whatever, the first five or so years I'm there, Carmine Infantino, Saul Harrison, Jack Adler, who invented many of the color systems that we use in the comics in those years, Julie Schwartz, Murray Boltonoff, who was an editor for the company from the 1942 or so, Joe Orlando, Joe Kubert, Archie Goodwin, Denny O'Neill, Joe Simon's technically an editor. He shows up once in a while. A couple of those guys haven't made it to the Hall of Fame. Any of them you could argue reasonably could or should, and most of them have made it to the Hall of Fame. How do you not learn from those people? Yeah, it's it's incredible. There's no dead weight on that side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they help build this industry. So now in in 78, so you were editing Adventure Comics in 76, and in 78 you became editor of Batman Comics following Julius Schwartz. Did you have a vision of Batman at the time going into that? Uh, Tell us about that transition. So after the implosion, we had to juggle the editorial assignments. Right. And part of the logic that was decided on was that we should have a single editor for each of the major characters. Julie being Julie, he was given his choice. There wasn't enough room on his schedule for him to do both all the Superman books and all the Batman books. So which one do you want? And he picked Superman. I actually think that was the wrong choice for him because I think he was a better Batman editor than a Superman editor in the course of his life. Mm. But he felt that was the more prestigious assignment. And particularly we're coming up on the, the Chris Reeve movie, so there's a lot of lot of logic to it from that point of view. Right. I got the next dibs, so I got Batman. I was much more a Superman reader than I was a Batman reader growing up, but I'd read and enjoyed a fair amount of Batman, thought it was a good character. So I went in the library, basically took all the Batmans from the beginning and either read or reread them and wrote what I believe is the first time DC ever had a character Bible. Oh, for one of the characters. Wow. So that I could have all the writers on the same page at the same time. Wow, that's awesome. Because that brings a lot of order to, to the chaos. Well, thank you so much, Paul Levitz, for this riveting interview here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. Tune in next week for the second half with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Cheers. <laughs>